The old pilot's plain tales, flown west. When I recently went for a Burton, a tale about the words we use in aviation, it appeared to tickle some of your fancies. So, since you enjoyed it so much, here's a little more. Some are a little more obscure and have fallen out of use, such as aeronaut. It literally means one who glides through the air, but mainly relating to doing so in an airship or balloon, or, to prevent more emails from Micah, an aerostat, rather than the method practised by Dr. Steph, who plummets. See what I did there, Stephanie Plummer? at terminal velocity, through the air, with grace, and a parachute. Aeronaut comes from Greek roots, and is a combination of the word for air, aera, that's a, e with a squiggle over it, and an r, pronounced aera, and nortes. It was the French who put them together in the late 18th century to make aeronaut. Whilst the term pilot has gained greater traction, aeronaut became the basis for the family of terms that we still use, such as aeronautics, aeronautical, and even astronaut. Forgive me again, Dr. Steph, and other modern pilots of the female gender, but whilst this next term has, quite correctly, fallen out of common use, it has its place in history, and is found in many texts from the early years of flying. It comes from the combination of aviator, from the French aviator, which itself comes from the Latin for bird, avis. I wonder if the car rental company knows that. Hmm, not sure if birds try harder really works for me. Plus the Latin aetur, used to form agent nouns. For this word, the term aviat is given the Latin female ending rix, giving the word aviatrix. But I agree that its modern use is potentially offensive, properly obsolete, and aviatrices all over the world just need to be called pilots, or quite often captain. Two, twice, or double. In ancient Greek, is dis, but you pronounce it with a silent s, from where we get die, without an x, which can prefix many words. If you saw two Captain Jeffs, I guess you could shout, die Captain Jeff, but that might be open to misinterpretation. So how come we have a biplane and not a diplane? Ah, if only the Greeks and the Romans had got their feces into a mound. By has the same meaning, but it's of Latin origin. Back to the word in hand, add die to the ancient Greek word for the face of a geometrical solid, and you have the word for an angle between two plane surfaces, which in aeronautics, yep, we've just been there, refers to the slope of an aircraft's wing, specifically the upward slope, known as dihedral. The opposite type of slope, i.e. downward, is known as pause to allow you to shout at your loudspeaker or, more embarrassingly, apparently shout at some innocent passing stranger because you have earphones in, anhedral. Here, an is likely to come from a Middle English alteration of the Old English un, 
from the Latin in, or the Greek an, all of which mean no, and are used in relation to the Latin prefix anti, meaning against. Whatever, I've always loved the words dihedral and anhedral, as their use really separates those with a casual interest in aviation from those who have spent some time in study. But can we remember the aerodynamics behind the use of dihedral? You should know that it gives lateral stability to a design, but how? Well, when an aircraft is disturbed in roll by the standard central flying school puff of wind, it will start to side-slip towards the lower wing, which means that the relative airflow now arrives at a slight angle. When wings have dihedral, this angled airflow meets the lower wing at an increased angle of attack wing compared with the higher wing, which gives it more lift and corrects the disturbance. Some aircraft don't want increased stability as they get enough from other features such as wing sweep or a high-mounted wing, so anhedral is introduced to improve roll rates and control response. Enough of that, let's move on to a terminal situation. I often wonder how wise it was to bring into everyday aviation parlance a term which is so often used when describing the end of something, particularly life. You have a terminal disease. This condition is terminal. If you touch those 1,000 volt terminals, the result could be terminal. Here we have to thank the Proto-Indo-Europeans for the word term for boundary and ter, meaning to pass through. Both the Greeks and the Romans used it in terma for goal and termon for border, as well as trans for through, across or over, and possibly I enter or I go into. There's even a bit of Sanskrit in there, tar, to overcome. Whatever, it's the French who decided that we would start and end our aviation adventures at a terminal. The word was already in use for the railways, but you would have thought they might have used something more pleasant, like gateway to heaven. Hmm, perhaps not. How about pleasure portal? Hmm, I'll think on that a bit. Pitch is something we do when we pull our noses up. Hang on, shouldn't that be a sneer? Oh no, I mean our aircraft's noses, and it describes movement around the lateral axis. It also describes throwing, tossing, casting, a playing field, selling, or promoting something. The gap between the teeth of a saw, gear, or printing letters. The angle of a roof, a place where a busker works, a section of rock face between belays or stances, or the limits of ground set to a miner who gets a share of ore. Not forgetting the pitch is also a sticky sap from a tree, the dark viscous distillation of crude oil, and a degree of darkness, or blackness. Our pitch comes from the nautical term, which describes the motion of a boat, and also includes roll, yaw, and heave, which also doubles as a bout of antiperistalsis. Pitch originates with the Middle English pitchin, an assimilated variant of the word picken from a similar Old English word, all of which come from Proto-Germanic, but can also be found in Old Norse and Swedish. 
We can, of course, pitch up or down. But what happens if we pitch up into a loop? When inverted, are we still pitching up, or is it now down? And if so, at what point did it change? An equally slippery term is slip, which, in the third-person singular simple, presents as slips, present participle as slipping, simple past and past participle as slipped, and which comes from the Proto-Indo-European slub via the Middle Low German slippen, and that is just one of three lines of etymology. To slip an aircraft is to yaw it, so that it progresses in a crab-wise and most uncomfortable manner. In a turn, it would be correctly described as uncoordinated, but slipping is often used to create extra drag on a high approach to correct the situation, or perhaps to see past a long nose when lining up on the runway to land. But it's not something you will often see done in a big aircraft. To measure if our aircraft is slipping, or the corollary, skidding, we use one of the simplest instruments on the instrument panel, a little ball in a curved glass tube. Should we allow the nose of the aircraft to point into a turn, we are skidding, If it points out of a turn, we're slipping. To correct the situation, we apply rudder until the ball is back into the centre of the tube and the aircraft is aligned with the relative airflow. Some aircraft use an even simpler device, a bit of string. I trust you'll forgive me if I leave skidding to another day. Yoke is a lovely word, and a device much loved by a particular type of pilot. In ancient Roman times, a yoke was an arch under which a defeated army was made to march. A yoke is a mechanism that couples, attaches, tethers or otherwise fastens a pair of animals into position. A yoke is also used to join two people in a close relationship, which is why you find one on many kinds of aeroplanes. As to the origin, it goes back to the Greek zugon and Latin jugum, meaning join, and then finds its way via Old German josh to Old English. In aircraft, yokes come in a variety of shapes and sizes, the most common being of a U or W design. However, Some aircraft use an M style, such as the Embraer aircraft and Concorde. There are some rarer exotic or archaic styles, such as circular designs, much like a car steering wheel. In larger aircraft, they are usually mounted on a post, sticking out of the floor and getting in the way of your meal tray, and can be referred to as a control column. In most other planes with them, they are mounted on a tube that comes out of the instrument panel. Side sticks and centre sticks are better for making rapid control inputs and dealing with high G-forces, hence their use in military, sport and aerobatic aircraft. Yokes are less sensitive, thanks to a larger range of motion, so better for those not blessed with a delicate touch, and they take up more room than side sticks, sometimes even obscuring instruments. By comparison, side sticks are not intrusive, allow for the provision of tray tables, bearing three-course meals, and make it easier to move around. 
The comparison is, in the main, however, pointless, as any professional pilot worth his salt will fly well using whatever is in front of him. When I say, to come to a stand, in this case I'm not referring to our parking position at the terminal, but actually to an intransitive of the 1400s, meaning become stuck or be set fast, to stall. The Old French estelle, or English stiel, were adopted to refer to an engine, or engine-powered vehicle, which became stuck or stopped. The earliest attested use of stall in the aeronautical meaning is in 1904, when Wilbur Wright himself, and congratulations for the recent anniversary of your first flight, old chap, stated that he allowed the machine to turn up too much and it stalled it. The noun form can be found 14 years later. He went straight up 300 feet and stalled and fell out of the stall right into the middle of the field. In our world of aviation, the stall occurs when a wing goes beyond the critical angle of attack and the smooth flow over the wing surface breaks down into a turbulent, inefficient mess that will no longer produce enough lift to support the weight of the aircraft. Whilst speaking of our favourite bicycle makers, the Wright brothers, I must thank them for the next device, which they attached to the front of their first powered aeroplane, a duck. A large number of early aircraft designs had ducks fitted, since many were suspicious of putting one on the back after the famous pioneer of flight, Otto Lilienthal, had been killed in a glider of that design. Some tried flying without a duck at all, but they were very difficult to control. The problem was that duck behaviour wasn't properly understood, and by 1914, W.E. Evans commented that the duck-type model has practically received its death blow, as far as scientific models are concerned. That didn't stop the Germans from playing with ducks, and in 1927, Focke-Wulf built the F-19 with a duck, Funnily enough, they called their aircraft a duck. Enter, in German, which does mean duck. The design was inherently safe, since the duck is designed to stall before the wings, which made the duck effectively stall-proof. Perhaps these ducks are becoming a bit confusing, so I should probably revert to the original French word for a foreplane or control surface that's situated in front of the wing, a canard, or more correctly, canard. French for duck. Sadly, Focke-Wulf's co-founder, George Wolf, was killed when the F-19 Enter came down following the failure of a control rod. The use of a duck as a common control design re-emerged in the jet age, and particularly with supersonic design. The North American Valkyrie and the Soviet Sukhoi T-4 both had canards, but it was the Swedish Saab company that overcame earlier problems with their close-coupled duck design on the Viggen. Nowadays, ducks are everywhere, from mirages to sukhois, from beechcraft to Eurofighters.
What is interesting about the term canard is that it also is used to describe a fabricated or unfounded report or story. But let me assure you that this particular story will not prove to be entirely a canard since the term's use in aviation comes from the arrival of the Santos Dumont 14 bis aircraft of 1906, which, with its long fuselage stretching forward from the wings and sporting a box-like foreplane, was said to look like a duck or canard. The word itself comes from the old French, caney, to quack, which also means hoax, so... Duck, you sucker! Flying West is American for gone for a burden. Generally, it seems to be connected to the earliest parts of human history, and the direction of the setting sun, symbolising the end of the day, and so, figuratively, the end of one's life. Going west has been used to refer to dying since at least the 16th century, and it's sometimes said that it refers to the ride westward that condemned prisoners in London took from Newgate Prison to the gibbet at Tyburn, where Marble Arch now stands, though the idea is probably much older. The land of the setting sun was thought to be the abode of the dead for many cultures, for the sun was seen as dying each night and being reborn in the morning. The American Heritage Dictionary of Idioms states that it was first recorded in a poem of the early 1300s. Women and many a willful man as wind and water have gone west. It's possible that the idea goes back to Roman times, where west and death were linked. Indeed, the word Occident, meaning west, is similar to the Latin for I fall down, perish. The Celts believed that the land of the dead was in the west. Avalon and other such abodes of the dead were called the Western Countries. To the Celts, nothing was out to the West but water and the end of the world. Past that was found paradise. It may surprise some, but going West was also a term used by old Egyptians, as in Egyptian mythology, the dead went West across the Nile to the afterlife, after passing judgment, as the Western Desert was not generally inhabited in ancient times and was presumed to be the land of the dead. So, if I were you, I'd keep heading east, young man. If you enjoyed this story, please leave a review at Apple Podcasts. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.